Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 23 Hastily Contrived Answers Despite the frequent cancellations of their occlumency sessions, Hermione continued to improve her skills. Those thousand words of text which Dmitri had instructed her to memorize were almost effortless to summon up, and sometimes Hermione dreamed of the passage or snatches of it. She had begun to memorize other words as well, essays and homework and interesting paragraphs, weaving them into herself just as thoroughly as Ron and Theo had constructed their own mental images— a capacity which continued to befuddle her, insofar as Ron claimed that he perceived the images in his mind as vividly as any photograph that he might hold in his hand. Their progress meant that they were ready for something more. Occlumency is being varied arts, classified together because it is useful for it to do so, Dimitri said at their next lesson. Legilimency, somewhat so, but more unified, all part of art going into head. He lifted his wand, carefully pointing the end of it away from anyone. It is one of most subtlest arts of magic. First one is casting with wand and word, then silently. Then even without gesture one may, being talented, perform legitimacy, needing only the eyes, Dimitri said, tapping his left temple. I have heard it said that some may hear, or at least feel, thoughts of others, being alerted to them before they are seen, but... Dimitri shrugged. I'm not believing, only hearing it. Competent legitimances would generally need a wand, or at least a gesture, to delve deeply into someone else's mind, but could still pick up loud thoughts with a mere meeting of the eyes, which was probably the upper limit of what was possible. There were stories of stranger capabilities, of keen adepts who could perceive the mere presence of a thinking creature from a hundred yards away, or infiltrate their thoughts and commands so thoroughly into the lesser beasts that these became mere extensions of their will. But these were merely rumors and legends. It seemed more likely that, if there was any truth to the tales to begin with, for wizards had as many baseless myths as muggles did, then other kinds of magic might have been used instead. The Confundus, a carefully constructed anti-intruder jinx, subtle forms of divination, the Imperius, the list of possibilities ran as long as one's imagination. Legitimacy is not reading mind, not like reading of the book, more it is like speaking with mind, like one is speaking with a person. Can you learn from speaking with person, even against their wanting it? Of course, legitimacy is active. One is not just sitting there, watching there. It is almost as if one is putting a part of oneself into the other, Dimitri explained. Legitimacy sees what you see, perhaps feels a bit more, but otherwise nothing. Much knowledge must be seized by force or trick. Legilimens can put thought into your mind, perhaps so sneakily you think it is yourself, and then what do you do? Memories are found by associations. You think one thing, then another related to it. And when Legilimens gives you thought, same occurs. What do you mean about feeling a bit more? asked Hermione. There is something of divination in Legilimensy, discerning what is not naked to the eye of the mind. Good legilimenser sees what is on surface, but also sees the fishing lines going below. 
Kit's inkling of which line to pull. Where is line between skill and divination? I do not know. But ice fisher, catching fish, though they cannot see fish through ice, is not also diviner, are they? Dimitri shrugged again. Or perhaps they are. I do not know. The first rule of occlumency, Dimitri had told them, was to make legitimacy impossible, averting your gaze, hiding your eyes, avoiding suspicion and interest altogether. The second rule was mental awareness, consciously apprehending one's thoughts and why they were being thought, and the third was knowing when someone else was using legitimacy. This time, Dimitri explained, he would simply enter their minds. I will not interfere, I will not probe. Only press against your thoughts. When you feel my presence, raise your hand. Legilimens, he incanted. And he stabbed his wand into the air and met Theo's eyes. It didn't look particularly interesting from the outside, except that Dimitri was gritting his teeth and looked more focused than she had ever seen him before, which arguably was focused at all. Then it was Hermione's turn. At first she didn't notice anything different. After a couple of minutes, however, Hermione felt something... It was, perhaps, easiest to relate to the sensation of being watched, and as soon as that comparison occurred to Hermione, the hairs on her neck stood up and she raised her hand. "'Very good,' Dimitri told Hermione. "'Late, but good.' She had been quicker than Ron, and about as fat as Theo. "'We will test this more, so you are acquainted, but not now. First, showing of next tool in legitimacy arsenal,' he said." And, with another incantation, the image of a white circle, the moon, appeared in her mind's eye, free of detail and yet purer and more distinct than any image she had envisioned in her mind before. Was this what it was like for other people when they imagined pictures? Legilimens, sir, he is not merely seeing your thoughts, but can be making them. Give you image, sound, terrible scene that the mind's eye cannot look what from, and observe what thoughts you make. It is called impose. Dimitri said. "'We will keep practicing,' he said later. "'Be more subtle, both of us, and my legitimacy may be more forceful. Today we have a discovery of muscles, but later we must build muscles, train instinct. You must make all this your two-ish nature. Uh, nature number two. Reflex, detecting without thinking, putting up false thoughts without command.' While Dimitri worked with Ron or Theo, Hermione exercised her capacity to multitask, running through her memorized texts as she looked around the room and tried to really be aware of what she was looking at. Spiderwebs and spiders of unusual size, Ron, Theo, Dimitri, and Padfoot, armchairs with speckled upholstery, and a plushy blob that was slowly reverting to a pile of rubber ducks. Slowly, Hermione reacquired the creeping sensation that she was being watched, or perhaps that they all were, and that seemed like a good sign that she should let her mind relax. Above all else, occlumency was the art of the paranoiac, the person who, perhaps for good reason, believed that their own thoughts were not secret to the world. When they were finished, Dimitri ran off almost as quickly as if he were a puff of smoke that somebody had waved away. Theo left next, while Hermione, sunk into a comfortable armchair, decided to wait there for a couple of minutes and see how much she could call to mind of Virgilius and with how much effort. As she did so, Ron picked up one of the rubber ducks that had fallen away from Dimitri's blob chair, shrunk it with a quick charm, and stuffed it into a pocket. "'Why are you interested in occlumency?' she asked as Ron turned to leave. "'Theo wants to get a head start on his studies, I think, but what about you?' Ron looked down at her for a moment. 
clearly weighing whether to reply, then said, "'I want to work for the Ministry.' "'But I thought that you didn't like Riddle.' Ron sighed just a little, like he'd heard this before. "'He isn't the Ministry, just a part of it. Maybe a big part,' Ron admitted. "'But you don't have to like him in order to get the job done, if you pick the right job. "'Somebody like Peregrine Derrick is probably going to be his dog. No offense to you, old boy,' Ron said." scratching Padfoot behind the ears and paying him a smile. But that isn't what I want. Hermione rested her chin on one hand. What do you want, then? I don't know for sure, Ron admitted. Big and oral sounds really nice, but I don't think that I'm cut out for that. I hate wizard, maybe, or just a alley patrol wizard, if that's what I can manage. What do you mean, manage? You need connections if you want to do more than file other people's reports. Or at least you do if your last name is Weasley. I don't remember what it was like during the war. I was too little for that. But I remember what it was like afterward. We were purebloods, and we might have been uh, disliked by people like Malfoy, but turns out that doesn't matter much, does it? Malfoy sidled up to Riddle, and Dad supported Dumbledore. So Draco's mom got a Merlin seat on the Wizengamot, and my dad was fired and we lost the orchard. The orchard? she asked, leaning forward. She'd never gotten the impression that the Weasleys were agricultural. Orchard, garden, chickens. We kept it on but the orchard, but we still ate gnomes for a bit. We're lucky that Dad's a good handy wizard, Ron said. His business is okay now, but it wasn't always. And if we couldn't enchant something ourselves, then we did without. You ate gnomes, Hermione exclaimed. And Ron frowned, red-faced. It isn't like we wanted to, he said. Gnome meat is just as foul as you think. But it was plentiful, and they were pests anyway. But gnomes, that they're, they're almost beings, Hermione said, sitting straight in her chair. They can talk a little, they're curious, they care for their offspring. Ron stared at her, now displaying more shock than shame. They're beasts, Hermione. Clever beasts, I guess, but they're really just garden pests. Most of our chickens were right clever, too, and we ate those. Ron paused and looked thoughtful. You're French, though, and I suppose you might not eat chickens, either. No, we eat chickens in France. I've never given them much thought before, not like that, she said, falling into thoughtful silence for a moment. It was just that gnomes looked like little humans, wasn't it? But that shouldn't be a determining factor. Hermione decided to change the subject. So you want to work for the Department of Magical Law Enforcement? Or DMAC? That's the uh, Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes, Ron explained. That's hard work. A lot harder than being a patrol wizard, but it's still good. Maybe even better. You really help people. You try to keep things from going wrong. And when they've gone wrong, you fix it up as best you can. Ron looked somber for a moment, his eyes a little unfocused, as if he were deep in recollection. Percy told me that DMAC was the minister's department before he became the minister... It was Cornelius Fudges, I mean, Ron said, and he smiled. Listen to me talking like I was Percy. The minister's department, really. Hermione smiled, too. People pick things up from the people that they love. Ron shrugged. Percy's the reason that I'm taking mental magic at all. Fred and George only care about it so far as it means anything for Portrait Club, but it's a real leg up for getting work in the ministry. Because Riddle will help you out? No, Ron exclaimed looking almost a bit angry at the idea, and he took a breath. Not at all. I don't want his help, but I... I don't want his hindering, either. The amnesty was supposed to mean that everybody would forget who took which side in the war, but nobody did, of course. 
they might not even let me through the door with my name, but Percy, see, he, he told me that mental magic would give me the chance to show Riddle that I don't mean anything more than what I say, Barn explained. I don't want Riddle to open any doors for me, but I don't want him locking them either. It seemed that she might have read Ron completely wrong. So all this is for Riddle's benefit, Hermione clarified. More or less, getting on Newt is a requirement for the Obliviator Squad, but I don't think I want that anyway. Loads of them are Riddle's people, and anyway, they deal with muggles too much. Hermione raised an eyebrow. You don't want to deal with muggles? I don't know how to deal with muggles, Ron confessed. Besides, it's not a good look. My dad was too interested in muggles. That probably caused him just as many problems as openly supporting Albus Dumbledore. If I joined the Obliviator Squad, then some people might think that I took after my dad, and I was trying to make excuses to interact with them, Ron added, and his voice dropped to a hush. We all have to think about how our actions look to others. You probably noticed how Ginny is having trouble with that, with, with Malfoy. What was the problem with referring to Draco by his first name? Because they're purebloods. But don't there are a lot of those? And none of them are allowed to marry each other. Everyone's allowed to marry anybody. Even Malfoy and Ginny, maybe. Though they better not. They can be right insufferable, and his cousins already... Ron took a deep breath. But it would look political. My family aren't just purebloods. We're supposed to be really pure. Or anyway, and that's what some people would have said before the war. Not that we cared. And the Malfoys were the same way. It might look like a statement if Ginny and him started to date. Why does everything have to be so political? Hermione grumbled. Ron laughed. When hasn't it been? He said. It's been nice to talk with you, but... And I know this sounds bad. Just, I don't mean it that way, but... I'll be glad when you're gone, Ron said. It was a bit simpler before the tournament. Hermione smiled. I understand what you mean. It'll be good to be gone, too, and back in France. Not that the company hasn't been good. It's hard not to miss home, Ron agreed, and then he departed. Hermione stayed behind for another moment, then scratched Padfoot behind the ears and headed back to the carriage. It had been a fairly ordinary day, which she ended with a nightcap of proofreading. Hermione was woken that night by a knock at her door. Soft enough that she initially thought that she'd woken on her own. Then the knock came again, gentle and rhythmic, and just a touch louder. Fleur? No, miss, came the voice of a, of a house elf. May Nipsey be entering? Uh, yes, yes, I, I mean, y yes, you may, Hermione stammered, still too confused to answer properly. As soon as the door opened, Hermione immediately asked, Why are you knocking? I thought that you could just stop right where you'd like. The door slowly drifted open, and then walked the house elf. He was dressed in a silken table linen, which was wrapped around him like a sort of toga, and the end of it drooped behind him like a scarf and nearly touched the floor. Wizards cannot truly wall out a house elf, he said, but sometimes they just don't like to see it. I am thinking you might be liking me to knock instead. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate your thoughts, Hermione said. Is there something that I can do for you? May Nipsey sit on the chair, Miss Granger, he asked. And as soon as she nodded, Hermione's chair pulled itself away from her desk and Nipsey disappeared from her sight. When he appeared an eye blink later, Nipsey was already in a sitting position. There was no popping sound, much less two, as Hermione would have expected, and it had happened too quickly to imagine that Nipsey had simply become invisible. 
How did you separate like that? Silently, I mean. Hermione could imagine a few methods, but the least convoluted was to conjure air in the same place as yourself, exactly in proportion to the space which one would leave unfilled, and that was plenty convoluted to explain why wizards didn't bother. That is how a herself is doing it most of the time, Miss Granger. How can a herself be sending away their laundry to other herself's or do any other work in the night if they are making noises? It was true that Hermione would probably be woken by the sound of apparition, and if not Hermione, then other students would be. But when you send away laundry, that isn't... How is that the same as apparition? You can't disapparate something else, not if you aren't pulling it along, Hermione said. Oh, no, you have to. It must be possible if you're doing it, but... House elves are not disapparating, Miss Granger. And they're not apparating either. That is a noisy wizard magic, Nipsey declared. He blushed and his ears fell briefly, and he quickly went on, saying, Which is not saying noisiness is badness, only that it is bad for a house elf, who should be neither seen nor heard, not while they are doing their work. We only are making noise when we must be. Like at Halloween. Like at Halloween, Nipsey agreed, nodding with a smile. Wizards are preferring to hear us come and go when they know we're doing it. Then how do you do it? We were being put into nothing, and then we were being put out of nothing. The house elves had said something like that in the kitchens, Hermione remembered. It seemed vaguely like non etre, the state of non-being, into which vanished objects were somewhat philosophically said to go. If she understood correctly, Nipsey had said that house elves vanished themselves, then somehow unvanished, but that was more confusing than Hermione's air conjuration theory. Things didn't come back from being vanished, and vanished ex-existent things certainly couldn't do anything, least of all conjure themselves or transfigure themselves. And even if they could, you couldn't transfigure magic. So a house-elf who did that wouldn't have their magic anymore. But then again, if you could transfigure yourself out of non-being, then perhaps your magic hadn't left at all. Perhaps you were your magic. Perhaps... Miss Granger, I am needing to leave soon, Nipsey said and Hermione was brought back to the present world. Oh, right, sorry. Wait, you have to leave? No, no, of course you have for the work. Sorry, sorry, you must have wanted to talk with me about something, and here I am still talking. Hermione smiled and pulled two fingers horizontally across her lips. Only afterwards did she remember that Nipsey had probably never seen a zipper, and the embarrassment on her face turned one shade redder. Nipsey cupped his hands together, then pulled them apart. Where the hollow between his hands had been, there was now an origami dog of the same sort that Hermione had found a few months ago. He picked the dog up by the scruff of its neck and handed it to Hermione. "'How did you do this?' Hermione asked, eyes going back and forth between the dog and Nipsey's hands. "'It isn't like disappearing things or relocating them. Nipsey is not doing anything, only helping it along.' Hermione turned the dog over again then set it on the corner of her desk next to the other. I don't understand, she admitted. Everything is liking to be in a certain way. Nipsey is just helping it along. As like if Nipsey is picking up the clothes or washing the dishes. Things are not wanting to be in a mess, so elves are putting things where they belong, which is where they want to be put. House elves are not wanting to be in a mess either, Nipsey said paying Hermione a look that made her feel like she was intended to understand something. Always there is a place for house elves. 
It raised thoughts of Hermione's conversation with Riddle and the broader question that Riddle had posed to her. She mean... She trailed off, then tried again. Would you have chosen, if you had gotten the choice, would you have chosen what happened? Miss Granger is kindly to think about such things, but it is not helping, Nipsey replied. What is done has been done. Good, bad, Nipsey shrugged. When old soup is spilled, Nipsey is making new. But how am I supposed to think about this? Nipsey made a peculiar expression, somewhere between confusion and concern. Miss Granger's thoughts are her own. Do not ask Nipsey to give what is not Nipsey's. But I just want to learn from you, Hermione said. Nipsey is not professor at Hogwarts, Nipsey said, laughing uneasily. Sorry, Hermione said, suddenly a little uncomfortable. But her mind was already working on another question. Offhand though it might have been, Nipsey's reply had pointed out a rather embarrassing oversight. At Hogwarts there were many kinds of beings present, but one in particular was absent. Why are there no house elf students allowed at Hogwarts? she asked. Always Mr. Riddle has loaded. Mr. Riddle is a good wizard. Strong-hearted but good, Nipsey said, and his emphasis left no room for argument. But yes, strong-hearted even for a wizard, house elves are not learning at Hogwarts because Hogwarts has nothing to be teaching them. Our forms of magic can't be that different, can they? Hermione asked. There are goblins, hags, and vampires at Hogwarts. Maybe there are things which are hard for them, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to learn. Nipsey begs Miss Granger's pardon, he said, slowly shaking his head. But she is not understanding. Wizard magic is being forceful magic. You're saying, make a fire, and make fire. Or you're saying, be light, and is light. But always wizards are saying, do this, or do that. House elves are not needing this. They're not wanting it. House elves are listening, and then, when house elves are asking, they're asking very nicely. Her eyes widened. And that works? Mostly it is working, Nipsey said as though perhaps he were talking about a wolf that was mostly tame. There was an edge there which Hermione couldn't quite decipher. Things mostly are trusting ourselves. They are knowing how selves are not hurting things. How selves are helping things to be the way that things are wanting to be. And sometimes, only sometimes, a house self is needing things to be in some other way. And then they are asking, very nicely... Why don't more wizards know about this? Nipsey smiled. Wizards are not listening. Their ears are too small, he said. And before Hermione could react, he leaned over and flicked one of her ears, and then withdrew to his original position on the chair. Nipsey thinks he is saying too much. That he... that he is talking too long. It is late, Nipsey insisted, the moment that Hermione opened her mouth, and Miss Granger must be sleeping just as Nipsey must be working. Without so much as a snap of his fingers, Nipsey was gone. On her desk, the origami dogs stood motionless. Hermione stared at them, wondering at first why Nipsey made them, and then what she ought to have wondered from the beginning. Why had Nipsey woken her up in the middle of the night? It couldn't, well, it probably wasn't, just to give her another paper dog. There had to have been something more. 
but instead Hermione had gotten excited that there was a house elf who was willing to talk with her, to approach her, rather than just look for a polite way to shove her out the door with some baked goods in hand, and she'd interrogated the poor thing until he shoved himself out instead. Shit, she said to no one. Eventually there was nothing to do but to return to bed, and hope that she would feel less embarrassed in the morning. This worked, but only for a very marginal degree of less, and Hermione mostly picked at her breakfast and ate just enough to satisfy Fleur, while her thoughts went elsewhere. During her next free period, Hermione's feet went elsewhere too, because she felt just as restless as she was ruminative, so off she went, with a heavy mind and a stomach that was somewhat lighter. She didn't so much pick a route as simply walk a circuit outside the castle, the walls to her right and the forbidden forest more or less to her left, at least until she'd gone far enough around that the forest was now behind her. About three-quarters of the way around, Hermione reached what had once been the castle's chapel. Hermione had read in Religion and Change in Magical Britain that the religious tendency in Britain had been toward familial mystery cults which weren't necessarily even religions as much as an agglomeration of private traditions and superstitions, and in general they had soured on organized religion. Anglicans and Papists had to muck about with muggles far too much, and Cromwell's Puritan dictatorship still lay in living memory when the statute was put into effect. Since organized religion had mostly fallen back among British witches and wizards, for the past couple of centuries, it was anyone's guess whether a particular headmaster would neglect the chapel, restore it, or turn the room to some other purpose. Riddle had settled the matter for good by eliminating the chapel entirely, gouging it from the castle, and putting in its place a yew grove, along with a few stone benches and a dirt path. The chapel ground was shady for most of the day, because the rest of the castle yet remained, including the floor above and most of the ewes had to be personally sunlit by the groundskeeper, an unpopular growler named McNair. Even so, it was beautiful in the morning, when the sun rose in the east, as if emerging from the Black Lake itself. At this time of the day, however, the sun had made its entrance already and begun to head south. Hardly anyone showed up this time of day, lest McNair show up early and in a bad mood. But Hermione wasn't so much going to the chapel grove as walking past it, and anyway, she was still deep in her own head. By the point that the Black Lake was in sight, her thoughts had gone from house elves to the Triwizard Tournament. It was obvious to everybody, including Hermione, who could admit that she sometimes missed things if they weren't on a page, that the third task was going to involve the Forbidden Forest in some way. Ministry workers and representatives of other governments could be found going in and out of the forest at all hours, some of them even entered Hogwarts. It was uncommon, but not terribly unusual, to see one in the halls as she walked from one class to another. It was also curious. She was so wrapped up in her own thoughts that Hermione nearly failed to notice Fleur and Dimitri amid the shadowed yews. Fleur was leaning over him, almost looming or maybe towering. She had one arm out against the castle wall, and her other hand gripped Dimitri's collar with one hand, pulling him closer. Suddenly, Hermione felt a bit flushed. Dimitri said something, obviously flustered, and Fleur smiled. They were too far off for Hermione to make out any of what they were saying, but it stabbed her in the heart a little nonetheless, and she felt twitchy around her fingers. It wasn't a good feeling, and Hermione resolved to squish it down as far into herself as it would go if she couldn't get rid of it entirely. 
Obviously, Fleur was, well, the important thing was that if Fleur was happy, there was no reason for Hermione not to be happy, too. It was just unexpected, that was all. A little bit of a shock. After all, there had been those comments Dimitri had made about Vila's. What would appeal to Fleur about someone like that? She could definitely do a lot better, and Hermione was certain that Fleur knew it. Though it was also a little concerning, because Hermione was pretty sure that Dimitri was involved with Samara, or at least he had been. She was pretty sure, too, that Fleur wouldn't be party to anyone's romantic foibles. But Dimitri had already shown himself capable of covering at least one deception, and Hermione didn't think he'd lie about this. But she hadn't thought he'd lie about stealing an important magical artifact, or about spying on one of the most important figures in Britain, or... Still, just to be sure, Hermione spoke with Samara as soon as she was able to arrange a private conversation... Samara, however, seemed to think very little of the fact that Hermione had seen Dimitri in a moderately compromising position with, well, someone. Hermione wasn't about to point the finger at Fleur when her mentor obviously had no idea of Dimitri's deceitfulness. "'There's nothing to worry about,' Samara wrote on her slate, and she drew a second smiling face to match her own. "'We aren't as involved as you might think. To be honest, I'm glad to hear it.' "'Oh,' Hermione said, "'I thought—' It doesn't matter, that's fine, then. I do like Dimitri, Samara wrote. He's a little inexperienced, but a very quick learner, and he's very sweet. But it really is good to know that he's looking at other girls again, and maybe more than looking. He's just been so earnest about the whole thing. Samara rolled her eyes. You would think that I was the boy's first crush. His first girl crush, perhaps, Hermione thought. She didn't believe that Victor and Dimitri were romantically involved— but Olaf's daughter had implied it too casually to dismiss the possibility of something similar in the past. "'Not that it's been much of a problem,' Samara continued. "'Like I said, very sweet. "'But I had wondered a little what might become of him when the year ended and we went our separate ways once more,' she wrote. "'In closing, I appreciate the notice for many reasons, "'but I assure you that Dimitri is doing nothing inappropriate.' Well, if everyone was happy about it, then Hermione would be happy about it as well. Nevertheless, it did not cease to gnaw at her, and perhaps the gnawing even grew. She had known that Samara and Dimitri were involved, but had not apparently known how much or how little, as the case may be. It was another part of Dimitri which Hermione hadn't even guessed at, and Samara for that matter, and there was clearly something in Dimitri which Fleur thought praiseworthy, even attractive. But then again, Hermione was no less multifaceted, one face to her grandparents, another to Miranda and her parents, a third to her friends. It was a bothersome thought, made worse by a warning from Dimitri and several of her books, that it was possible to abuse occlumency, to delve so far and so long that all one's faces turned outright into masks. There was something true inside Hermione which could recognize the untruth of each face that she presented— but the mere idea of that other state made her feel slightly hollow inside. That night at dinner, Hermione had slim roasted cattails, whose taste was somewhere between cucumber and corn, and mussels steamed and buttered, and a fillet of banging haddock, red and orange and seasoned with fire seeds. She had to eat slowly and drink frequently, for the haddock came close to scalding her tongue as often as it popped and crackled in her mouth. Beside her, Fleur had seared steak, still rare and red inside, and adorned with peppercorn sauce. At the high table, Karkaroff picked ground meatballs and thin slices of potato. 
Madame Maxime had stew, in a pot large enough for several ordinary-sized people and a jug of milk. Big bones required big amounts of calcium. Riddle, of course, ate nothing, but set a plate of chicken legs and scotch eggs on the floor for Padfoot, and Mertvago, for some reason, was absent. Now and then Hermione paid glances to Fleur and Dimitri and Samara, but she couldn't puzzle anything out. Any glances which Dimitri paid to one might as easily have been given to the other or been meaningless. She really ought to just talk with Fleur about it, maybe after dinner. She could figure out what it was Fleur saw. Her musings on this subject were interrupted when she realized that the din and commotion of the great hall had stilled, and she followed Dimitri's gaze to the entrance. Two wizards and a witch stood just outside, dressed in British ministerial robes. "'Welcome to Hawkwaltz,' Riddle said from his place at the high table. "'I didn't realize that we were meant to play host to the Aldors tonight.' "'Did you give permission for ministry wizards to enter the Hogwarts dungeons?' asked one of them, a tall, blond man with blunt features and a terrible smile. "'I did,' Riddle said. "'That is an important item for them to inspect before the third task.' "'Well, there's a corpse in the dungeons,' said one of the other Aurors, a short, wiry witch with close-cut hair. "'Thought you should know.' The Great Hall erupted in panicked voices. Riddle, expressionless as ever, raised a hand, but for once the student body paid no heed. "'Silence!' he said. And the command, though quiet, cut through the noise like a sharp sword and stilled the room. "'And Mr. Pettigrew and Miss Piwackett contacted the Department of Magical Law Enforcement rather than myself, I see.' Briefly, Riddle's mask turned to Ludo Bagman, whose face broke into an uneasy smile as he shrunk into himself. "'I had nothing to do with them. I mean, I would have told them to—' Bagman stammered. "'Enough,' Riddle said. His mask turns to Mertvago's empty seat, but only for a moment. "'I imagine that friend Mertvago's absence is now coincidence,' Yaxley nodded. "'We were dispatched at once, naturally.' "'By Amelia Burns, I assume.' "'It hardly matters.' "'Give her my regards when next you see her, Yaxley. "'But I wonder, does pious thickness know that you're here?' Riddle said. "'I would hate for this to reflect badly on you during your next annual review.' "'It hardly matters,' Yaxley repeated. "'And he made a show of surveying the great hall. "'One of you did it, no doubt about that. "'And we're going to find who?' "'Or a Cornisher and I will conduct interviews in there,' he said, pointing to the antechamber. "'When Auror Berrycroth calls your name,' Yaxley said, gesturing to the third Auror, a dull-looking wizard with short, neatly trimmed facial hair, "'you will assemble a line outside the door. Until this process has completed, no one is to leave this room.' "'But I'll take hours!' exclaimed one of the older Ravenclaws. "'That doesn't matter either,' Yaxley replied smugly. "'But why are there just three of you? There were more when—' when The student trailed off for a moment. "'If there were more, then you would be finished faster.' "'There are only three of them, because Bones could only trust three. Riddle said. "'Isn't that so?' "'A representative of the Russian government died in your school, Riddle,' said Cornisher. "'Headmaster, Riddle,' said Riddle coldly. "'Well, anyway—' "'We want to find the culprit before this becomes an international incident.' 
And now you're going to conduct individual interviews in a tiny little alcove. Truly think that's wise of you. Yaxley sneered. There are no other exits from the room. When we identify the witch or wizard responsible, they will be cornered. And so will you, Riddle said. With due respect, Riddle, you aren't my supervisor. Don't tell me how to do my job, Yaxley said, as Berrycloth unfurled a scroll. The following eight individuals will assemble before the door, Berrycloth announced. Abilie Rowland, Accrington, Zoe, and so forth. Until they were all aligned beside Berrycloth and Roland, a fifth-year Ravenclaw became the first to enter the antechamber. Can they talk to him like that? Hermione wondered aloud. I don't know what you were thinking, Hermione, but the headmaster doesn't run the country. Draco took a spoonful of peas while he chewed over what to say next. He's important. He runs Hogwarts, and he has a seat on the wizard gamut. But he's not the Minister for Magic now, is he? Hermione wasn't sure how she felt about that. October seemed to think otherwise, and she shared that impression, but it was beside the point. I thought that he got along with the Auros, though. I didn't see anything like this when they were here earlier. He probably had the opportunity to pick favorites. Some of the Auros fought on, you know, the other side, Draco said. Then there was the general amnesty. Now they all have to work together. The one at the head of them, that's Corbin Yaxley. Him and my father used to know each... Well, um... Draco said, his voice hushed. Anyway, all that was before my father changed sides. Why did he do that? Hermione asked. And she hoped that she didn't sound purely curious. None of the books explained. They hardly mentioned Lucius Malfoy's role in the war, let alone his motives, and she was awfully curious indeed. But she had an ounce or two of tact as well, perhaps three ounces, and Draco was her friend. Draco didn't answer immediately, but looked away, first to Professor Malfoy and then to Columba, sitting closer to her brother than before and paying worried glances all about. The silence lingered, but before Hermione could apologize, he said, "'Father told me that he learned what it was like to lose a parent, and he—' Draco swallowed. He didn't want that to happen any more, not to me, and not to anyone else. Taking Hogwarts meant that nobody else had to lose their parents. The war would be over.' "'Jellica Fleur!' called Berrycloth. Fleur patted Hermione's shoulder, then stood and walked to the line. Hermione watched, paying attention to nothing else, until finally Fleur entered the antechamber, and Hermione watched the door. After an extremely long minute, or perhaps two minutes of only moderate length, Fleur appeared again, and Hermione let out a breath she hadn't realized she was holding in. "'Fleur, you're right. I'm all right, Hermione,' she said, smiling. There's nothing to worry about. It is only a cursory inspection. They will use a reverse spell to check your wand and perform a few other tests. It will be fine. Darktonwald Lootpold, Berrycloth called, and one of the Durmstrang students departed from the Slytherin's table. Colin Crabcatch raised his hand, and then, when that failed to attract notice, called out, Aura Berrycloth, I have to go. I'm sure that you think you have to go, but you can stay here until we're finished. "'I mean, I have to go,' Colin said. And Berrycloth's eyes got wide enough that Hermione could notice his shock from halfway across the chamber. "'Just vanish it!' one of the Gryffindors shouted. "'That's disgusting!' replied a Slytherin girl. "'And what about the rest of us? I'm a second year. I haven't learned vanishing spells yet!' Berrycloth knocked on the door to the antechamber, and after quickly conversing with the Axley, he said, 
Staff and prefects that have already been interviewed may escort other students to the bathrooms. If anyone does not return after 15 minutes, then they will be charged. For what? For perverting the course of justice! He actually snapped. He nodded for the next student in line to enter the antechamber and then closed the door. Cedric Diggory stood up immediately and started asking around to see who needed an escort. First years first, if you don't mind. And on they went, until Berrycloth's voice rang out. Granger! Hermione! Fleur put her hand on Hermione's. It will be fine, she said. And Hermione, with a bit of reassurance and two bits of gifted courage, took her place at the end of the queue. Standing in front of her was Daphne Greengrass, busy reassuring her younger sister. "'It'll be just a minute, and I'll be out here the whole time, Master. There's nothing to worry about,' Daphne said. But of the two, Daphne's tone seemed more stressed. Inside the antechamber was the same couch that Hermione had sat on just a few months earlier. On a table in front of the couch was a vial of the same turbulent potion that the Aurors had used in the course of their previous investigation, now shimmering and sulfurous, and a set of collapsible onyx balances— one pan of which was weighed down on the black metal figurine of a wizard, hunched over and hands clasping his head in the middle of a hideous scream. "'Your wand,' Yaxley said, and Hermione handed it over to him, flipped around and tip-facing herself. "'Prar Cantato,' he said, and her wand threw up a couple of sparks and a ghostly flash. "'Pagination charm,' Cornisher said. Yaxley frowned and repeated the spell— but Cornisher's next pronouncement was no more incriminating. Word-sifting charm, she said, and then summoning spell. Each echo was fainter than the last, until finally Yaxley couldn't force anything out of the wand, no matter how willfully he encanted. He looked at Hermione's wand as though it were defying him, then set it on the balance's other pan. The balance didn't budge, and when Yaxley pressed down on the wand's pan with his finger— the pan rose to its original position as soon as he let go. Yaxley turns to her, grimacing and glaring as if she were responsible for every mishappenstance that had ever befallen him. "'Your name is Hermione Jean Granger,' he said. "'Yes?' Yaxley's eyes narrowed almost to slits. "'Your father's name is also Jean, but it's spelled differently from yours. Why is that?' "'What does it matter to you?' And why are you looking up things like that anyway? And where had they gotten that information? Had Riddle provided it, or October? You're of great interest to us, Granger, and I hope you understand that we know a lot about you. Hermione felt something, the faintest brush of awareness against her own, and immediately brought to mind a passage from an earlier translation project. Hingvia, tatarequae ferta caronis atundas, and turned her face away. Torbidus hikaeno vastake vorigine gurgis. What do you want? Aestuat atque onnem cocito erupta terenum. Answers, said Cornisher. Why did you agree to join the tournament? asked Yaxley. What? Protitor haserendus aquas et fomina serva terribilis qualore charem. You're a French citizen. "'Why are you playing at being Britain, citizen? "'Did Riddle offer something to you?' Yaxley demanded. "'No, but I didn't want to be expelled from Bobaton. "'Qui prorima mento canities inculta iacet.' "'Then what is your position on Tom Riddle?' "'Hermione almost laughed. "'The sooner I'm away from him, the better,' she said. 
tant lumina flamma, sordidus ex humorus nodo dependet amictus. You've had plenty of opportunities to get out of Britain, if that were your aim. Hermione was about to explain what she thought of those opportunities and the price they commanded when Cornisher interrupted. Sir, she said, and Yaxley glanced at her, then nodded. Miss Granger, we are extremely troubled by what has been happening here, Cornisher told her. You may not be aware, but you are rapidly becoming a political symbol. I know, she said, holding in a sigh. It would be in everyone's best interest if you withdrew from the tournament, said Cornisher. You especially do not underestimate Riddle. You might be useful for his plans today, but you can't count on tomorrow. Hermione looked up at her. I can't leave. If this is just about Bobeton, Cornisher said, then I'm sure that alternative arrangements can be made. Hermione shook her head. It isn't just that. It's Laurent October, too. From the French Ministry? asked Yaxley. I don't know why he's doing this, but I'm sure that he's wrapped up in everything. Yaxley looked about ready to bluster and show his teeth, but Cornisher spoke first. We'll take a look at him as well. Thank you. Why are you worried about this? Riddle is plotting something, don't you understand? Yaxley snapped. He huffed for a moment, then snarled. We know that you've been meeting with him. What is he up to? You have to have seen something, heard something. She doesn't know anything, sir, Cornisher insisted. She'd better not, said Yaxley. But why won't you look at us, I wonder? What secrets are you hiding in that skull of yours? Before Hermione could blink, Yaxley grabbed her by the chin and wrenched her face back into his view. Legilimens! Hermione brought up a wall of text again and twisted from his grip. Don't think that a flimsy textbook will do you good for very long. You don't know what I can impose. Cornisher interposed an arm between them. Sir. Yaxley held still for a moment, then sighed like a bellows and spat on the floor. How would somebody like you figure out a smidgen of occlumency anyway? You're not in Riddle's classes. Cornisher is right. You don't know anything. You just can't stay focused on anything but your books. We're taking too long, sir. Let the mudblood and his dog bark all they want, Yaxley said. But the sigh had mostly deflated him and now the rest of his fervor seems to escape. Give the girl her wand back, Yaxley said. And Cornisher returned it to Hermione, in the same position that Hermione had given it to them. Time for the next one, Yaxley ordered, and Hermione left the anteroom, returning to her table while another student was called up to the line. All in all, it had been far better than Hermione had thought, but it was still an unpleasant experience. Till now it had never crossed her mind that there might be division in the Ministry's ranks, but that wasn't something that she wanted to discuss here and now. Some of her mood must have shown in her expression, though, or perhaps it was merely her friend's good nature. But as soon as Hermione sat down, Fleur asked whether she was all right. "'I'm just fine,' Hermione said. "'There's something I'd like to talk about later, though.' No one was at ease while they waited." But Karkaroth, in particular, seemed to grow uneasier with every name that Berrycloth called. By the time that Hermione returned from the antechamber, he had ceased to do more than pick at his food. When Lee Jordan was called to the line, he dropped his fork. It clattered to the floor, and Karkaroth stared ahead as if he were unaware. Karkaroth Igor! Berrycloth called a minute later, but Karkaroth didn't budge. Karkaroth Igor! he called. And finally Karkaroff roused himself, stood slowly from his chair, 
and made his way to the antechamber with the attitude of a man already tried and condemned. No one could miss it, and before he even reached the line, the great hall was full of hushed conversation. But he invited Montvago, and I knew it, and how though? At the Switherin's table the Durmstrang students were all sullen and worried, watching as their headmaster queued up, shuffled a little closer to the antechamber every couple of minutes, as if he were walking to the gallows. There was confusion on their faces, outrage and disbelief in equal measure. When Karkaroff disappeared into the antechamber the whispers fell away, and an anticipatory hush descended. Nobody, it seemed, wanted to miss a thing. Several minutes passed, and several more, and then the door opened ever so slightly. Yaxley's head poked through and spoke hushedly, as Berrycloth dismissed the line and entered the antechamber. The minutes wore on again, until finally the door opened wide and all three oar-roars exited the antechamber. Karkaroff walked between them, silent and head downcast. "'Igor Karkaroff will be escorted to the Ministry for further interrogation,' Gaxley said. "'The rest of you are free to move about once we have left.' It was impossible to miss the whispers, and impossible amid the noise, to pick out any particular statement. The Durmstrangers were the most agitated, of course, but it seemed as though no one from any school had expected a headmaster or rector to commit murder on school grounds. Riddle seemed to regard the antechamber for a long minute, then turned his focus back to the Aurors, now halfway down the great hall and not far from Hermione. "'Hold fast for a minute, if you would, Aurorexley,' Riddle said. "'Aurorexley,' he repeated. But the Aurors continued their march. "'Eagle,' he said. And Hermione, who was almost beside them, saw Yaxley flinch, and saw his eyes widen in a paroxysm of fear. "'Imperious the Aurors, did you?' asked Riddle. There was silence in the great hall for the space of half a second, then an eruption of violence, shouting and spell-light. Knives went through the air, only seen in the corner of Hermione's eye, while Karkaroff lifted up his head and turned to face Hermione with blank eyes and a slackening jaw. Hermione reached for her wand as Karkaroff lunged, but he made no attempt to disarm or curse. By luck, or perhaps an instinct born of Adalia's lessons, Hermione had shifted askew, and Karkaroff's teeth caught the shoulder of her robes. She smashed the heel of her hand into Karkaroff's face, and his hand shot up, fingers twisting around her wrist, tightening painfully. He tried to bite her, Hermione realized, in the same moment that someone, Fleur it was Fleur, shoved a dinner knife into the side of his throat, but Karkaroff didn't seem to notice. Around them the great hall was alight with spells. Hermione kicked and Karkaroff was off balance enough to fall to the floor, but his grip on Hermione never loosened, and she fell too. The phantom of a factoid floated into her consciousness, and bluebell flames erupted from her wand like the froth of an ethereal volcano. The magical fire was harmless, but it was fire nonetheless, and Karkaroff recoiled like a vampire confronted with garlic, scampering backwards like a crab-walking footballer. Behind Hermione, someone cast a banishing charm, and Karkaroff slid ten feet across the floor, then collected himself and ran for the Ravenclaw's table in a loping kind of gait, alternately bipedal and quadrupedal. One of them blasted off his leg, and he hit the floor as Professor Sinistra conjured rope and chains with which to bind him. "'Draco!' cried Columba, and Hermione turned. Yaxley stood near the table, Draco in his grip and the edge of a thick, black-handled knife pressed against Draco's throat. 
A few feet away, Berryclaw sat leaning against a bench, his head transfigured into an enormous goldfish, clutching at his gills with what remained of his right hand. Near the Ravenclaw's, Cornisher was bound with rope and chain, unconscious, one knee bent in a direction it wasn't meant to bend, and face half-covered with soapy suds. Between the high table and the student tables, Riddle held his wand out, ready to cast but silent and unmoving. Draco's face was even paler than normal, and his eyes were locked on Columba. "'Can you speak the killing curse faster than my wrist can twist, Tom? "'Put your wand down,' snarled the Yaxley. "'Now Karkaroff, Hermione realized. "'Riddle had called him Igor, but Yaxley's name... "'Draco had said his name was Corbin. "'Riddle's arm lowered very slightly. "'You have me at a disadvantage, Igor,' Riddle said. "'But you cannot think that I would allow you to kidnap one of my students.' If you give yourself up, however, then I promise not to feed you to Mr. Sable. I do not think anything. I know that I'll get out of here, said the man who looked like Yaxley. He still sounded a bit like Yaxley, but there was something of another accent in his voice as well, a little Scandinavian, a little Russian. I'm going to walk out to the edge of the grounds, backing up like so, he said, taking a soft step backwards to demonstrate, and he will follow me. When I am almost beyond your anti-disapparition jinx, then I will release him and take a couple more steps back. But make no mistake, my wand will be pointed at the Malfoy boy, and I will step off the grounds and disapparate. Does that sound acceptable, Tom? You should not believe that this will leave your free wizard forever. Yaxley snorted. You shouldn't believe that you will be able to catch me. If I were you, Riddle said, then I would be more concerned about whether the Russians will catch you. Yaxley's face twisted into a smile. "'I would be more concerned for them than about them,' he snorted. "'It did not work out the last time that I dueled one of them, did it? Now do we have a deal?' For a moment all was silence, and Riddle was as immobile as a statue. "'My patience is undying, Igor. Even when it burns, it lives. But for now we have a deal,' he said." And as the other wizard took a step back, Riddle stepped forward. "'Everyone else is to remain here until my return,' Riddle said. And he continued to walk until he and Karkaroff and Draco were out of sight. The minutes stretched on, but nobody seemed to have any interest in defying Riddle's order, or even in speaking. Amid the whispers and muffled crying that seemed to fill the great hall like a mist, Hermione put a hand on the back of Columbus's shoulder. It's going to be okay, she said. Your headmaster will get Draco back, you'll see. Columba nodded and wiped a napkin against her face, eyes wet and red. Of course, Columba said. Headmaster Riddle is a great wizard, isn't he? Hermione couldn't think of anything good to say in response to that, so she simply nodded, but that seemed enough for Columba. She looked a little better at any rate. Under Flitwick's direction, Madame Pomfrey and a few of her students attended to the incapacitated Aurors, but Hermione couldn't tell what effect their administrations had. Beyond them, the Inferius jerked and twitched, but the incarceration jinx held fast. As the Great Hall quieted, Hermione had plenty of space to think about what happened and to understand it more as a series of disjointed events. The whole exchange couldn't have been more than two or three minutes long, but it felt as though those few minutes held an hour. Karkaroff had murdered Mertvago, obviously. 
If there hadn't been sufficient circumstantial evidence already, he had admitted it too. It wasn't clear how Karkaroff expected this night to go, but he had made some sort of plan in case something like this had happened, and done so well in advance. Matvago had been present at lunch, and he couldn't have brewed polyjuice in the space of an afternoon. Presumably, Karkaroff got the better of Yaxley and Cornisher, and done it both quickly and quietly, since Barrycloth seemed not to have heard anything that might have alarmed him. Cornisher, at least, had been imperious, and as the minutes wore on, Karkaroff first fed another dose of polyjuice to Yaxley, then killed him, then raised him as an inferius. Some went in that timeline. Yaxley or Karkaroff in the guise of Yaxley lured Barrycloth into the antechamber and imperiused him as well. Did raising an inferius require advanced preparation like Powijus did? Hermione only knew a little about them, and nothing which related to their manufacture. At last, Riddle returned to the Great Hall, and Columba rushed from her seat to embrace Draco, who was paler than usual but seemed physically unharmed. When he reclaimed his seat at the table, his hands were shaking very slightly. "'Are you all right?' Hermione asked. "'Oh, you know, never better.' Draco said, and he fixed a smile onto his face. "'Really, I'm fine,' he insisted, as Columba wrapped her arms around him in a tight embrace. Meanwhile, Riddle had yet to take another step inside the Great Hall. His mask turned this way and that, perhaps examining the Great Hall, then stepped closely to the writhing, animated body that bore Karkaroff's face. Riddle seemed to regard the Inferius, then lifted his wand, squared its head, and encanted— just barely loud enough for Hermione to hear. Reducta. There was a flash of light from Riddle's wand, and then Yaxley's skull was a stain across the floor, a mist in the air, a dripping of fluid from Riddle's sleeve and wand that continued to drip as he turns to face the great hall. You're all dismissed. Due to the trying nature of tonight's events, tomorrow morning's classes are cancelled. That will be all. Beside his feet, the Inferius continued to twitch. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, Thank you for listening.